Shadows on Media. This is Coming Out Stories. It's a podcast about one of the most important conversations of your life. I'm Emma Goswell. In this episode, we're going to hear from Carl Austin Bean. It really is an extraordinary story that takes you on a proper roller coaster. I guess I really knew I was gay from, well, I knew I was different uh, from the age of seven. And it was that sort of period of, of growing up, going through school, where you sort of felt you were different from the other people in the class. Primary school and junior school, going into secondary school, there was um, encounters with other lads that I was with at school. When you say encounters, you mean sort of romantic encounters as, as a child? Both romantic and a little bit sexual, yeah. um, even at, at that age. And it was strange because you don't... You know, people always say that, you know, people experiment... And I get that completely, and, and that was something that I was doing from, as I say, from the age of seven. And I suppose it's that thing, isn't it? It's your body, and it's about the experimenting of the body. Yeah. And for some reason, I never really felt attracted to girls, but I did feel attracted to the lads that, that were in my classes as, as growing up. So they were reciprocating. Was there any element of bullying or judging you? As for the bullying and judging, I think it was no different than whether you were... Because I was quite a chubby kid at school anyway. So whether you were chubby kid, whether you had glasses, whether you were a bit effeminate, it was the, it was the sort of general sort of name-calling, you know, the, the, the typical sort of name-calling rather than it be a case of the vicious bullying aspect. I was a bit of a loner at school, as in the fact that I didn't really have a group of friends that I mixed with constantly I'd sort of dip in and dip out of different people and and that sort of was the way right from sort of primary school infant school junior school secondary school and and it was I mean there's, there's a core of people that I still keep in touch with now and we've had convers- a lot of conversations since about the fact of how I didn't fit in in one sense but then it was easy for me to sort of fit in with a lot of other groups. Was there any point where you actually came out at school then? Not at school. I'd try to sort of speak to my mum when I was about 12. And, again, my mum was just like, oh, it's a phase you're going through. You know, all boys go through this. So so I just took it that that, that was part and parcel of, of a phase of life I was going through. And then as sort of school continued, sort of 14, 15, I was um, engaging in um, sexual acts with, with people at school. And also having emotions with people. So I knew I was different because no one ever spoke about being gay or no one no one educated you mm. about sexuality at school. It was I remember our sex education class was a cucumber with a condom and that was basically it. And I think the the conversation was more about why your ball bag was saggy rather than anything mm. else. Do you know what I mean? There was there was no yeah. sort of there was nothing that, that sort of gave you any sort of sexual education. Because this was the 1980s? It was, yeah. I mean, I went through secondary school, 88 to... Sorry, 83 and left in 88. I would say, thankfully, just before Section 28 came in, but it didn't really affect us in that sense anyway because no-one really spoke about it. But then, as sort of... As I was, like, 15, 16, there was that period where we had a massive... uh, The the HIV-AIDS epidemic was hitting our screens. And I remember absolutely sort of beside myself... Um, seeing these images and then thinking, I'm going to die of this disease and I didn't want to be gay. I didn't want to have this... um, I just didn't want to be in that situation because, one, I was scared of dying, um, but also I felt that 
because it was it was such a taboo subject, no one spoke about it, and you had all the media sort of constantly about the fact of this was a gay disease and and, and people were going to die from it. So you had you felt shame about your sexuality. Yeah, I did. At that age, I did feel ashamed, and I tried to sort of think it was a phase I was going through. I remember, again, trying to tell my mum, and my mum again was telling me it's a phase I'm going through. And, yeah, and then I ended up sort of trying to see a girl. I went through the motions for, for a number of years. And I remember, because I joined the Air Force when I was 19, and I'd always wanted to be a fireman as a, as a kid. And then when I I'd sort of I tried to apply, but you had to be 21 at the time for Greater Manchester... I went over to see my brother in Cyprus because he was in the Air Force and I realised in the RAF that they had a fire service and I saw the sort of lifestyle that he was leading and I just thought, oh, this would be a great way. I really want to get involved here. So I applied when I was 17 and a half and it took me 18 months and I got confirmation on the 20th of April that, sorry, 20th of March that I'd been accepted to, to join up on the 2nd of April. No one knew. So I literally had to tell my mum, tell, tell my, my dad, my family that I was going in the Air Force. So you had to come out as enlisting rather than coming out as gay? Yeah. And you certainly couldn't have done the two at the same time, could you, then? Well, no, because it, it was illegal at the time. And I remember... Yes, yeah, it was illegal to be in the Army or the Air Force or, or in the forces it, as a gay, openly gay man. It was illegal. It, yeah, it was illegal, and that didn't get passed until 2000. But it was legal, and I remember my mum saying, but, but you can't. And I was like, why? And she says because you told me that, that you're gay. I was like, but mum, you've always told me it's a phase I'm going through. So it was like, it was a bit like a, a sort of throwback in a way. And I remember my brother, well, I've got one, one brother was in the Air Force and one brother had applied for the Air Force and didn't get accepted. And they just thought it was crazy, me going in the Air Force, because one, they didn't think I'd stand the discipline and, and two, they just didn't think it, it was for me. So in part of it, it was also a way of me trying to prove them, prove them wrong. And was your dad around at this point? Yeah, my dad was around... Me and my dad weren't that close, and uh, he was fine with it, no issue. Had you ever mentioned your sexuality to your dad, though? No, because even during the periods that I'd tried to come out to my mum and tell my mum, she'd always made it clear that not to tell my dad. And my dad had very um, bigoted views, even when it came to racial issues. You know, I remember going on holiday to to Newquay and um, seeing a, a friend that I was at school with who was mixed race. I remember talking to her and my dad sort of threw off the handle why am I speaking to her and gave a lot of obscenities. And that, that was the, the mentality of people back in the 80s, you know, when it came to sort of people's colour, race, gender. So you didn't think he was going to be tolerant? No, no. I certainly didn't think he was going to be tolerant. When... So talk to us about what it was like being in the Air Force then as, as a gay man, but keeping it closeted, I guess. Yeah, definitely keeping it closeted. And I was definitely leading a double, if not a triple life. Because when I was doing basic training, it was fine. And, yeah, I still have feelings for people, and, you know, you do get attracted to, to people in, the, in that sense. But when I was sort of going through that whole sort of period, and sort of because I was a fireman in the Air Force, it was quite a macho image, mm-hmm. especially with, with, with the Air Force as well. And... There'd been a couple of rumours that, that people sort of commented on. And so then what happened was I then started seeing this girl. Uh, she was engaged at the time to another lad. Uh, but we just sort of became good friends. And then the good friendship went further than that. And she fell pregnant with me. Wow. Uh, when I was 20. So then I thought, oh, right, OK, you know, 
what's, what's going on. And at the same time, when I was coming back to Manchester, I was seeing lads when I was back here. So she became pregnant on my 21st birthday. We got engaged. And then probably about six, seven weeks later, she had a miscarriage. And I thought then that that was a sign, that was something telling me, because I didn't feel happy, happy in that relationship. I felt like I was going along with this relationship just to sort of do what society said was right. You had a desperate need to be accepted and be normal, for want of a better word, didn't you, by the sounds of it? Yeah, because all we'd seen is the fact that the big HIV-AIDS epidemic was going on in sort of the late 80s, early 90s. I just wanted sort of family to sort of appreciate or value who I was as a person. Yeah. I didn't really know what my sexuality was because of the fact that you weren't able to be yourself. Yeah. And, and it was, it, it was a tricky sort of period of life. So when I was coming home at weekends or during the shifts, I was seeing people and, uh, and it was horrible because at that time we didn't have apps like you've got now. You didn't have um, dating sites or anything like that. It was go down the gay bars. It was For me, it wasn't a case of being able to go down the gay bars because if people knew I was in the Air Force and saw me in the gay bars... So for me, unfortunately, I ended up going through a bit of the cottaging and the cruising. You know, I'm not embarrassed about that, but it was something that... It was the only way of people could express themselves at that time, I think, because it had to be kept a secret because the fact that you've pointed out earlier, the fact that it was illegal and... You would get kicked out, you would get dismissed. You you could go to military prison for at least six months right. before being kicked out. So you were taking a lot of risks, and in the end, you did get found out, didn't you? Well, yeah, because then what happened was, as sort of time carried on, I my head was in bits in one sense, because I was coming back seeing... Uh, I was in the, When I was in the Air Force, I was seeing a girl who was, again, seeing a girl to try and fit in with right. um, what the Air Force expected. And uh, when you'd go out, you'd end up, being a lad, lad at the time, and then you'd come back and I'd um, end up seeing a lad back in Manchester, and yeah, taking a lot of risks. And then what happened was, and then that I went over to Ascension Island, uh, which is between here and the Falklands, and I was stationed there for nine months. And while I was there, there was a girl that I became again friendly with, and you know, we 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 really bonded, and it was, and then I suppose at that time it was a case of I was then questioning: was I bisexual? Mm. Um, was it a case of did it matter what people were, whether they were male or female? And it was about affections, and it was about love, mm. uh, and it was about emotions rather than just a sexual encounter. So I think that was an, another big thing of the whole questioning about my sexuality. And then while I was there. There was another lad that I got friendly with, um, and then we started having sexual encounters. And then there was a rumour going round about me and him while I was still supposedly seeing this girl. Anyway, I came back to do the London Marathon, so they flew me back, mm. so I was doing it for charity. So they flew me back, I came back for a long weekend, and some of them rumours had come back to the UK. Mm-mm. So I was petrified. Um, so when I went back, I literally sort of completely threw myself back into this relationship with this girl as if it was the best thing in the world to try and cover up a secret. And when I eventually came back from Ascension Island, I realised then when I came back to Manchester, because I was off for about a month afterwards, I realised, what the heck am I doing? Mm. Um, it was a case of I needed to be 
myself. I needed to, to accept who I am. At the same time, uh, I was stationed to, to Honington down in Bury St Edmunds and I'd just got my promotion through. So I'd just got, and also I'd just got the Queen's Commendation, CNC's Commendation. So I'd got these awards for the Air Force, I'd just got promoted. Uh, I was now at Honington and I was at that stage where I thought, no, I need to, to come out properly, I need to be myself. So anyway, in the November 96, I told my mum again, and my mum again, it's a phase you're going through. At the same time, my mum was diagnosed with breast cancer. So I was all emotional with that. And so then I told my brothers, and my brothers were very much like, well, one brother, David, he was like really upset. But then it was just like, I thought you'd tell me you'd, you'd something, you know, it was something serious. And it was, you know, it was nothing to, to, to worry about. My other brother, who was in the Air Force, complete different opposite view and it was a case of well you can't tell anyone that I know because if if I know that you're gay and you're still in the Air Force and I'm in the Air Force I would have to report you and that's your own brother telling you that that must have hurt that did hurt that, that did because I certainly wouldn't have expected that but then I then decided that I had to tell my dad and my mum was adamant don't tell your dad he'll kick you out and I was like you can't really kick me out because what what can you kick me out of I don't live here yeah so then I did tell my dad, and you know, it was probably one of the very first times that I remember for, for many, many years that he gave me a hug, told me that he loved me, and just said, look, look, son, no one ever told me how to live my life, but just be careful and just be safe. And that was the, that was the way that he dealt with it. That must have been a huge weight off his shoulders. It was, but the problem I then had was my mum found that really difficult because then I think my mum went through a stage where she felt that she knew my dad and she didn't know my dad at all because she was expecting a complete different reaction from my dad. And I think she found it hard, the fact that my dad was so tolerant, considering she'd always put this barrier there. Yeah. And I think she sort of... She thought that, why hadn't I come out earlier? Or why... You know, you know what I mean? That there could have been a lot of things going through my life that might have been different if we'd have had this conversation six, seven years ago. But you have the conversation when you have the conversation. You, I guess you don't regret not doing it earlier, or do you? Not at all, because I, I look at what I achieved in the Air Force, you know. The, we, I got the British Humane Society Bronze Award for Bravery, I got Good Show Awards, I got um, mentioned the birth, Queen's Birthday on this. I loved the Air Force, I still love the Air Force. If there'd have been an opportunity earlier, I'd have gone back in the Air Force. Best times of my life, I loved it. But you ultimately left. How, how, what well, were the circumstances with you leaving then? Well, because I'd, I'd told my family and then they sort of accepted it and I then felt more comfortable to be able to come out into Manchester, come to bars, come, come out. So I, I came to a few of the bars in Manchester. One of the very first bars I ever went in uh, was New York, New York and I just loved it. It was like the best night of my life. It, it's strange, isn't it, when you very, the very first time you, you, you do go into a gay bar... Mm. I'd been, in, I'd been into Manto previous, but not really sort of... It, it, it was just a bar, but I knew gay people were... But, you know, to sort of express yourself, that, yeah. was my, that was my first real time. And then sort of I started to see uh, more people in the, in the village, go out more on the scene. Went to Cruise 101, and I met a lad there. Um, we started a relationship. We'd only been seeing each other, it was probably the February time. But I, t I told a couple of people in the Air Force that I was gay. Because the work I was doing when I was in the fire service, you'd be sharing a room with people. 
when you're on shift. So I told them out of courtesy and they were fine with it. A couple of strange questions. One of the lads was like, I, d I don't get what you do. I was like, what do you mean, what do I do? He's <laughs> like, well, when I'm at home at weekend, he says, you know, we cuddle up on the couch, me and my girlfriend, we watch TV. What, what do you do? I was like, exactly the same. I said, I, I don't get what you mean, what don't I do? Or what do we do? So it was a bit like, lovely guy. Um, but if they've never come across someone who's gay, and do you know what? And the weird thing was, I think the majority of the people at that time didn't know a gay person. So that's almost harder to come out. People don't understand it. Well, yeah, and also at that time we didn't have role models on TV. The only role, the only people we had on TV was your Larry Graysons um, and your Julian Clarys, which mm. were very camp, effeminate people anyway. So th there was no sort of role models. There was no one there that people could sort of focus on to sort of think that you know that that, that was what you were. And again, so so when we had those conversations, they were fine, and then we didn't really discuss it. It was you know it was just that thing that. Because I was always Aussie, so it was this case like, yeah, Aussies, just just Aussie. Do you know what I mean? It, it wasn't. It was never really talked about then. But so. ultimately, there wasn't a happy ending to your Air Force career, was there? Well, no, because once I'd started seeing this lad, he wanted to, us to spend more time together. Mm. So he actually phoned the Air Force and told them that I was gay, and then told me that he'd told them. <laughs> but after an Easter weekend, so I was driving back to the Air Force, and I. First of all, I went and spoke to my sergeant, told him what had happened and what was going on. And then I got called into OC Admin's uh, headquarters, uh, officer commanding, sorry, OC, officer commanding uh, office. And in there, there was three three senior RAF officers. And they just sat me down and were like, SEC Austin, we have a question. Like, OK, do you know why you're here? And I just pretended I didn't know what, what was happening. Yeah. And then they said, we need to ask you, do you have homosexual tendencies? And you know what? And it was that minute where I could have quite easily have said no. Mm. And I firmly believe that that would have been, well, thank you very much, no problem. Because, as I say, I'd, have, I'd got all these awards in the Air Force. I also did a lot of charity work for SAFA, which was Sailors, Soldiers and Airmen's Association. And I had a lot of per people's personal details. So, I, so they knew that I was quite in an emotional person in the fact mm. of the things that I'd covered. But also in that split second in my head, I thought, is it now that I have to be myself and be honest and true? And it was the latter. I literally just burst into tears. Within, and this was all within a split second. Uh, burst into tears and confirmed that, yes, I was. As I say, because it was illegal at the time, they could have quite easily have still put me into military prison for six months. However, they suspended me for six months and sent me back to Manchester, sent me back home, because at that particular time, it was originally going through the European Parliament, and this was, what, 97? Mm. So this was 1997, and, say, still illegal to be within the, the armed forces. So during that, that period, I remember them getting the sergeant up, and he was like, look, we've all known, but we're not going to admit that we've all known, but he causes no threat, he causes no issue to anybody. Um, you know, I've got an exemplary record. The one thing that does disappoint me with the Air Force was the the wording on for me to be dismissed was incompatible. So I was incompatible to service life. And I think that was the only thing that I have a grievance with, with the wording incompatible, because to me an inc incompatible is like a light bulb. You know, it's either bayonet or screw. You know, it's, and that's not, that's not a person, that shouldn't be someone's... Um, gender identity is incompatible. I can see actually reflecting that you're almost getting quite emotional about it, looking, looking back and thinking about that time. Yeah, because 
in one sense, it seems like it was only yesterday. Mm. But then if we think it's not even 20 years ago that it's been legalised, you know, it's 21 years ago since being kicked out, but it's not even 20 years ago since it's been legalised. And I think we should be grateful of what we've achieved and what we've done. But then what was strange from that is I was suspended for six months and then I remember writing to, to Tony Blair at the time and then it got sent on to, to different people. But because they were the rules and regulations, I understood that completely and I take, took that on board. And then during that period, I then just got a bit of extra work, doing a bit of TV extra work, a bit of modelling, a bit of promotion work. I went to work for Asda. Um, over in Berry, and then sort of moved over to, to Hume. And during that period, I applied for Great Manchester Fire Service. Now, the strange thing with that is, even though there was gay people in the fire service, it wasn't really talked about, I was the first openly gay person to join the fire service. Wow. The problem they had was, at this stage, back in 1980, sorry, 1998, was they didn't have any diversity or equality understanding, really. So then... I started my basic training over at Thomas Street here in Manchester and I was asked on the very first day not to make my sexuality known because uh, it may disrupt the training. And I, I managed it for about two weeks. And then I just felt like, because sometimes you'd go home at weekend and come back and I just felt like people asking questions. I couldn't say that what I'd done all weekend, you know, I'd been to paradise or I'd done this or I'd done that. So then I ended, up, I ended up sort of telling the lads who I shared a room with and then I ended up telling everyone else that the, there was about 24 people on the course, so mm. I told them all. And they were all fine about it in, in a sense. It was a case of, I think they, they valued the facts of I was being honest with them. Mm. The officers went absolutely ballistic. We ended up going swimming over here, uh, Miles Platting. And then one of them, with a bit of banter, one of the guys made a comment about, because we had floats, and one of the guys made a comment about, should it not be a pink float? And uh, and I just, you know, I gave some banter back, and they went ballistic about it. Uh, we all got sort of brought back to Tom, to the training centre, given a rollicking about the fact that we're not allowed to make any comments, the fact that you're not allowed to talk about this or talk say that because someone could take offence. They, they, they just didn't know how to handle something that was, wasn't in their normal sort of... Um, surroundings. So then when we'd finished the training course everyone else got posted to sort of about 20 miles away from where they lived mm. and that was the normal thing because being a fireman what they didn't want you to do is work in the area that you live in case you come across an incident where mm. you may know someone. Anyway I ended up getting put, I was living in Hume, I ended up getting put at White Watch Moss Side which mm. is literally around the corner and this was uh, it had the first Asian fireman, the first black fireman, so obviously the first gay fireman. For Manchester? For, yeah, for, for Greater Manchester, yeah. And it was like the dysfunctional watch in, <laughs> in, in, in the nicest in possible... In their eyes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but then, because of the diverse inequality that they threw in there, it was a husband and wife team. The guy worked at Moss Side and the wife was at headquarters. And because they knew someone who was gay, that gave them the, the equality strand branding. I, I managed it for about 18 months and I just didn't like it. I just really didn't. I was, I was going to work crying. Cause I just, and, and I joined the fire service for the wrong reasons. I joined because I felt that I'd let people down. And I remember when I was... Because I, I was doing two days, two nights, four off, so I was working in between and I set up a promotions company. I remember someone turning around, one of the firemen turning around and saying, when I said I was going to leave, he's like, don't, don't just leave. He says, what you should do is go off sick... Um, and then after three months, they'll come to you, ask you why you've gone off sick. And then you just need to say that someone made a homophobic comment 
And then what they'll do is they'll give you a big payoff and you'll still get your pension. It's a bit duplicitous there. Well, I just thought, I'm, I don't want to live my life like this, where, mm. you know, I'd gone, for, I'd gone from getting kicked out of the Air Force to joining the fire service to not being able to be myself. And I just felt that it's just going to get even worse. So that was the reason why I just thought, no, this is me, clean slate, da-da-da. So um, you left? Yeah. So I left, and that was in 99. At the same time... There was a, a competition that was uh, UK-based, uh, Mr Gay UK, ah, that, that, yes. I, that, I, that I came across. So, Mr Gay UK, it's a, it is a, it's a sort of a beauty pageant contest. And previously, the people that I'd seen in it were sort of your bodybuilders, your um, dancers, you know, you know they good, good, good bodies and it, not necessarily great things up there. Um, but... I actually thought about this this competition. I actually thought, where were the normal gays? There was no role models again. There was it was all it was all very stereotypical uh, muscle Marys, hairdressers, dancers that went in for it. So in '99 I went in for it, and I won Mr Gay Manchester, and then overall I came second for Mr Gay UK in '99, and then I went for it. They didn't have it in 2000, but then I went for it again in 2001. Mm. And what I really wanted to do there, because I'd looked into it more, for me, it was more about the fact that there was no representation from normal gay people. And when you look at places like Manchester, Brighton, Birmingham, London, we had a gay scene, we had people there that that people could just fit in, to just fit in. But then where was the people to represent the people over in Worksop or in Derby or in Sheffield? And... I felt really passionate about the fact that they needed representation. So then I really went for the, I went for the competition again. But this time it was like a phone vote. So it was the first time they'd done a phone vote. So what I did was I went to different Pride events. I went speaking to people. I wanted to know what they wanted or who, who, who they felt they felt was representative of the gay community. Because that was about representing the community. Yeah. And for me, when the competition was around, you know, I didn't have the best body, but I had a... I could speak to people and I, and I felt passionate about the fact of it need representation. And I just felt the fact that, you know, I'd come from the Air Force, I'd done normal jobs, I'd gone into the fire service, and I felt that I could actually represent the community in a different way. And obviously the public thought the same as well, because you actually went on to win. Yeah, uh, we, the competition the final was held in Manchester and in 2001, and it was great to sort of win it. On the stage, on the main stage in Manchester Pride, and I had over sixty uh, percent of the votes out of all twenty-three of us, and and I felt that that was a real sort of plus point—the fact that people they voted for me personally, and my, my family were there, which was great to sort of have have them. You know, we've we've come a long way in that sort of three or four-year period. Even my brother, that had said not to tell anyone that I was gay, came with with his wife. It must have felt like the happiest day of your life, I imagine, after getting kicked out of the air force to then standing on the stage at Manchester Pride and winning Mr Gay UK. Yeah, it did. I mean, I did. I felt immensely proud. And at that particular point, it was probably one of the best days of my life and the fact that, you know, you, you've been recognised and it wasn't, a fact, it wasn't about the, the, the beauty pageant side of it all. I think it was purely because of the fact that um, going out and speaking to people and becoming an advocate. And I think, I think one of the things that once got kick, being kicked out of the Air Force, I think that was where my passion and my strengths came for being an advocate and for representing our community. What I love about your story is the fact that, you know, you, you've gone through some really tough times, but it really is a case of it does get better because not only were you Mr Gay UK, you went on to become the Mayor of Manchester. Yeah, uh, I got into politics in around about 2005 
because I felt that there was, you know, there was little things that you'd, you'd moan about, the bins and all that sort of stuff. But then when I got elected and I became a councillor. And then as soon as I came on the council, I realised that we'd never had, in that whole period of having a Lord Mayor of Manchester, we'd never actually had any representation of someone who was openly gay. So I put myself forward and people were like, but, you know, you know, you'd normally have to be on the council for 30, 35 years, mm. 65, 70 plus. And I was like, well, no, that needs to change. It's like, you know, we may have had a, a gay Lord Mayor in the past, but certainly not someone open or out about it. Mm. So when I, I then sort of put myself forward, uh, put myself forward in 15, 14, 15, first of all, and the person that got it got 42 votes, I got 41. So I realised that actually some of the councillors thought that there could be a time for change. Anyway, the following year, I put myself forward, uh, got 58 votes against 32. And I th I'll be honest, I think some people voted for me to see me fail. But I literally went out there and it was about representing the LGBTQ plus community. And I remember you were going to events every day, weren't you? You'd go to the opening of anything <laughs> just to represent. Yeah. Exactly. And, and, you know, people can, you can make... You can make little comments and jokes about the fact that I would turn up. But no, and it was, it was about representation. It was about the fact of this was now a situation. When I got um, elected as Lord Mayor, I remember the, the, the council's um, press office wouldn't put in their initial thing about me being openly gay. Uh, because what they didn't want to do was someone to then question, well, if, he, if you're saying that he's the first openly gay, who else was gay in the past? But I then, I did a, an article with the Manchester News and they ran this brilliant story and literally covered everything and showed all the pictures from Mr Gay UK. And I think one of the things that was great over that period as Lord Mayor, it was all about equality, diversity and inclusion. But being able to go in, speaking into schools, speaking into businesses, being invited to so many different things where the conversation would never have come up. Even going to mosques, going to synagogues, yeah. breaking the fast. And I remember breaking the fast over in Tutamel uh, for Ramadan. And I think I put a tweet out. The Guardian picked that up and then ran a full story about Manchester's first openly gay Lord Mayor being welcomed by the Yemen. You know, it was, it was all things like that that just broke down so many barriers. Yeah. One of my favourite moments was watching you lead the procession at Manchester Pride in, and tell everyone what you were wearing for people that weren't there that day. Well, the, the great thing for that was when I became Lord Mayor, obviously the robes are red and it's traditional that they're red. However, being a Lord Mayor, it should be black in, in, in the real world, it should be black. But yes, we have red robes. But then I managed to get it for, for Manchester Pride that I had made some pink robes. And what, what I loved about that was, if we look at how, how things can move on, if we think about 2001, doing my whole Mr Gay UK thing, I walked the Pride Parade and I was on that main stage wearing a pair of hot pants and a sash. To then, 15 years later, wearing pink robes, leading the parade, with the chain of office, being the first citizen of Manchester representing the city. And I just think that goes to show that anybody can do anything that they aspire to do. That was the extraordinary story of Carl Austin Bean. Massive thank you for him for sharing his story and taking time to talk to us. Please do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from. We'd also love to hear from you on Twitter. You can find us there at Come Out Stories. I'm Emma Goldswell, and Coming Out Stories is a What Goes On media production. Next time you'll hear from Lucha and Angela. I had nowhere to live, so I was I lived for quite a long time on the streets with other uh, young gay people that was uh, had run away from home for the same reasons I did.